Thanksgiving, everyone. Uh, you may or may not notice this, but if you use, uh, this is, well, I'm not starting the sermon right now, this is before the sermon, so. Um, if you use the restrooms here at Calvary or in the gym, you will notice every week there is a new kind of like newsletter or flyer that's put in the restrooms because sometimes, well, okay, we, we put news and announcements in the restroom because that's a great time where we have your attention and for five seconds, 30 seconds, you can read the announcements, all right? Last week, and we've done this a couple times before, there is a little blurb on that announcement sheet, both in the church and in the gym, that says, if you read this, contact the office and you will be entered into a drawing for a gift card. And someone, after like four months of doing it every week, someone actually said, I saw the announcement, I wanna be in the drawing. And I am here to award that person <laughs> with a gift card and you can apply any other things to that you'd like. Dan Santa. It, thank you for going in there and reading it. I'm in there a lot. Nope. Again, and this was all before the sermon. All right. Good morning, everyone. We are in the book of Hebrews during this Christmas season, and of course, January, February, March, April, and May as well of next year. And there are some times where life can be so incredibly busy that you're exhausted doing everything, but when you look back at the day, you wonder, what did I actually do? And one of the ways that I can apply this is on the way to work and on the way home, I take the exact same roads every single time. And I've said it before, but there are times when I get home at the end of the day and I pull into the driveway and I wonder, how did I get here? I mean, I remember driving and I did drive and I obeyed the speed limits and all the signs and honked when I was supposed to honk and all those things. And then, well, there's a lot of honking that goes on when I drive. <laughs> oh, I'm, I just have so many people to instruct and teach. <laughs> but you get home into the driveway and I know this happens to you too. You kind of think to yourself, I know it took me 15 minutes to get here, but I'm so used to it, I didn't notice very much on the way home or on the way to work or wherever it's going to be. It's because we're sometimes so focused and so just in our own daydreams that we forget to notice all those little small little details that we come across. And there are some times along the path of life that we have to stop and smell the flowers. Now, I know you've heard that phrase before. That means sometimes you just have to stop Take a moment and observe the things around you. Take a breath, breathe in, breathe out, and look at details that you would have missed because you are so busy getting through things. And I find that that kind of happens to me every single week that I'm here doing a sermon. I have so much material, I've been working on it for so long, and I am just passionate about what God is revealing in my own heart, and I want to share that passion with you, that sometimes it feels like I am nonstop talking as fast as I can for 35 minutes, and at the end of it I go, I know where I ended up, but wow, how did I get here? Because it could happen so quickly. And so I thought today that we would stop and smell the flowers. 
And when it comes to a sermon and a message, that means we're going to take our time with one verse. One verse. We are going to look at each individual word. We're going to look at how the phrases work together. And we are going to apply it calmly, patiently, with depth, with focus, and with attention to detail. And I know that the onus and the responsibility is on me to keep you from being bored. Because you're thinking to yourself, how in the world is he going to work through one verse and keep my attention and make it enjoyable and, in the end, get something out of it? I am up to that task. I have been up to that task for a while, and I cannot wait to share with you Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Now, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to look at all the nitty-gritty details. And I'm reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, so your versions, if it is an NIV or a New King James-based version, is going to be a little bit different because the words can be interpreted or um, translated a little bit differently. Uh, but the general gist of it in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 in the ESV is as follows. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. There are so many words in there. There are so many little connected phrases. There are so many beautiful statements about what we should be doing, how we should be living our life, that if I just simply took it through the end of the chapter, we would be missing such glorious, good details. I remember early on in my Christian life, uh, heard a sermon on a Sunday night, and uh, the preacher applied it by saying, I want you to go out into the parking lot, whatever, wherever, wherever. we had to pass a grass area in order to get to the parking lot, and it says, on your way out, I want you to pick up a single blade of grass, just a single blade of grass. Don't look at the whole lawn, just take a single blade of grass and look at it. Now, this was not some kind of middle, you know, Eastern humming and, and meditating on a piece of grass type of thing where you get lost, but it was in order to see the great details that God has created in this universe. A single blade of grass can be fascinating and amazing. The first word we face is one of those blades of grass that we can just simply dismiss because it's so common. It's the word, therefore. Now that word has tremendous impact, tremendous application, and tremendous conclusion. Because the word, therefore, has to be in that place for a reason. And any time in Scripture you see the word, therefore, you should ask yourself the question, what is the word, therefore, therefore? Why is it here? Because the word is a word of conclusion and application. It is as if the author is summarizing everything that he said before in the first few chapters now comes to a conclusion. Because of all of this, therefore, something has to happen. 
And so that word, which just simply passes us so quickly, has incredible depth because the author is asking us to consider everything that happened beforehand. What's happened beforehand in the book of Hebrews? Well, start it out by this glorious statement that the Son, Jesus Christ, is divine and given all power and authority on heaven and earth, and he is greater than even the mighty spiritual beings, mysterious and all, of the angels. He's far greater than any created being, including angels. And then there was application in chapter 2, this idea that he was the founder of salvation, that he brought it to us, that he gave it to us, that he was the incarnate Son of God, that he shares with us humanity so that he can relate to us, so that we can relate to him. See, he's not so transcendent, so distant, so, so utterly beyond our connection. But he was made like us, getting tired, getting hungry, bumping his toe, having to suffer the, the angst of being tired and frustrated and people not believing him. He had to hear the curses. He was made like us that he might relate to us. Because of all that, the author says there's going to be a concluding statement of profound application. So in light of everything that we've read in chapter 1 and 2, therefore, something is important. What possibly could be important? And we see that in the very next words. Holy brothers. He's calling to us, the brethren, the brothers and sisters in Christ, and he calls us holy. He declares that we are uniquely holy. Now, in its simplest term, holy means set apart and separated. And when it's in reference to God's character and nature, he is holy and separated from all sin. He is untouched by sin. He is untouched by deceit. He is untouched by lies. He is untouched by unrighteous anger and frustration. He is holy. He is separate from everything that taints us as human beings. And the author calls us holy. Now, the author doesn't believe that we somehow are now sharing in God's divine attribute and that we are free from sin, but in another sense, we are in Christ free from sin. Wasn't that the conclusion of the previous chapter? That he put to death sin and the devil, that he put to death the sin and frustration and the consequence, that he destroyed it. So it no longer is a master over us. We have been freed from that slavery. And so we do participate in being separated unto God, being made holy and being made righteous because of his work, 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 not because of your work, but because of his. We are called to be separate. So when you think about that statement, you are holy, or the question, you are holy, which one applies to you?
Because he's calling Christians, he's calling believers. So what do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself holy and separated unto God that someone would look at your life and go, wow, that person is God's child? Or would we have that confusion and go, they're holy, they're separated unto God, they're devoted to God, they're given to God, they follow God? Which one is true of you? Right here, right now, not 10 years ago, not what you hope to be one day, but right here and now as you're sitting in Pueblo at Calvary, which statement best describes you? That you are holy, that it is a statement of fact, that you are separated unto God, that you are his child and your life reflects his glory and righteousness? Or you kind of shrug your shoulders and go, I don't know, I think this applies to me. It says, holy brethren, and somehow I'm kind of, I consider myself a Christian, maybe it applies to me. The author is assuming if you call on the name of Christ to be saved, if you call yourself a Christian, then the statement is a fact, true statement, not a question. You are holy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 through 20, it says, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the first step in what it looks like to be holy. It's that there is a noticeable difference in the way you live. Now, the verse has often been wrongly applied to no drinking, no smoking, no dancing, no going out with girls who chew or do type of attitude. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about having a character in which you exhibit holiness. And it applies directly to how you live. Not just how you think, but how you spend your time, your energy, your resources, your hobbies, even down to your own body. Do you not know it's not your own? And I know I just said that, your own body, assuming that you have ownership of it. As a believer in Christ, we don't even have that basic sense in which we are rightful owners of this flesh. We're Christ. And he, without any hesitation, says, I'll tell you why you are Christ." Because he bought you. Oh, Tim, now you've gone two weeks in a row bringing up this idea of slavery and being bought. Don't you know that that is so politically charged? How dare you do that? Scripture tells us that we're slaves to sin, that sin is a master over us, and that in order to be freed from that bondage, it's not an uprising of slaves that we need. It's not a Spartacus. It's a Jesus Christ. And when he frees us from that bondage and slavery, we are truly indeed free. And that we now have a new allegiance. An allegiance to Christ as our king and our master. Not only is he our brother, our friend, but he is our Lord and master, as well as a savior. And it applies to even our physical bodies. 
are to be used differently for his kingdom than for our own selves, our own pleasures, and the pleasures of others. It is for his work and his pleasures. Third word in Hebrews chapter 1. First word was therefore. Second word was holy. Third word is brothers or brethren, brothers and sisters. There is a unity that we have. He calls us unified. And I know there are times where we feel so distant from being united. Notice how I phrase that. We feel distant from being united. We feel that there are factions. We feel that there are divisions. We feel that there is separation. Every time, and I'm going to make a pretty bold statement, but I believe every time that there is hated division in a church based on personalities or offenses, at the root of it is pride. At the root of it is I'm entitled to something and someone did not give it to me, therefore I will divide from them. That is terrible thinking. That is terrible practice. Every time that someone slights you, every time that someone doesn't acknowledge you, every time someone doesn't consider you, every time you get offended, division. And I'll tell you, the American church model makes it so easy to be divided and to leave. Now, there are times for division. There are indeed times for that. When it comes to doctrine, when it comes to false teaching, you should stand up against false teaching. But simply because someone didn't say hi to you or acknowledge you or simply because you didn't get a plaque that you thought you needed a plaque of acknowledgement or a trophy for what you've done, that is the moment in which we have to guard against individualism and pride and submit to the unity of the church. There are so many scriptures that talk about the unity of the church, that talk about how we are connected. You think of in 1 Corinthians, this idea of the body of Christ, where he is the head and we are the body. There is nothing more united than a body. Every part of this has to function for it to function well, and it has to communicate. And when it doesn't, it breaks down, it gets sick, and we know there's something wrong. Just like when there is division within the body of Christ, there are sides. We pit ourselves as enemies. We slander and gossip about one another. That's a sign something is wrong with the body. It needs to be fixed. It needs to be healed. It needs to be united. I fear at times there is more unity among believers over nationalism than there is over Christ. That we can get more excited about celebrating the 4th of July than we can about submitting to Christ and acknowledging him as our Lord and Savior. And you say, oh, Tim, no one would ever admit that. No, I don't think anyone would but I've seen it. I've seen it in churches. I haven't seen it here, but I've seen it in other believers. 
where nationalism and acknowledgement of Fourth of July is almost on par with celebrating Easter and Christmas. And my heart breaks that we think unity within the American church is based on Americanism than it is on Christ. We have unity based on Christ, not based on our language, not based on the time we're born and live, not based on our social economic status, not based on our skin color. It's not based on that, our unity. Our unity is based on Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Him, not in one another, not in the Constitution, not in 1776. No. As much as I appreciate that and praise God for that opportunity to live in this time and place, if we were born 500 years earlier, we would still be just as united, just as firm in that unity, just as bound to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, first and foremost. Americans fall down on that list towards the bottom. But first and foremost, we are in Christ. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has this <laughs> amazing interaction. Well, he had, every interaction he has is amazing. But he's coming on the heels of um, talking about Jonah, talking about uh, fruit and evidence of a godly life, and um, some miracles. And he concludes at the end of chapter 12, starting in verse 46, and he says this, or Matthew records this. He says, while he was still speaking, that is, while Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. So the setting is Jesus is ministering, and his mom, Mary, and his brothers, which were physical descendants of Mary and Joseph, Jesus's half-brothers and sisters. So his family, real physical family, are standing outside, his mom and his, his siblings. And they're asking to speak with him. Uh, nowadays, we would text or FaceTime and try to get his attention. Why are you not texting me back? Why are you not texting me back? But back then, they had to do it the old-fashioned way and say something at the door, physically speaking. Then he says, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? This is not a moment when Jesus loses his memory and goes, oh, I got a mom and brothers? What? No, he is posing the question to make the following point. He says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my family? And he answers that. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You know he's describing us too. When he waved his hand at his disciples and said, here's my family. And my family is not defined by my physical genes or relations passed back and forth. It's based on one thing. What does he say? He says, it's based on whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. What is God's will then? Well, one, we did have a series on that not too long ago, how to find God's will. But God's will 
is simply put, following his word. It's not any more complicated than following his word. Believing it. Following it. Doing it. So who can be Jesus' family? Anybody can. Anyone. People who look radically the same as us and radically different than us all can be Jesus' family. Brothers and sisters in Christ. That is a remarkable truth that Jesus expressed and applied to the New Testament church unlike he's ever done before. That family, God's family, is no longer simply Jewish people of Jewish descent. But nationality is irrelevant in his eyes. He can create children of Abraham from rocks or from people who live in America. Or, this is the tough one, people who live in Russia. I'm going to go one step further. People who live in China. Ooh, is he going to go there? Yes, he is. People who live in North Korea can be closer to us as brothers and sisters in Christ than our next-door neighbor who knows every American intricacy or, oh my, I just forgot the word, every American inside, inside thing. <sighs> I need to get back to the next word. All right, so that was the third word. Fourth word, well, phrase. Therefore, holy brothers, back in Hebrews chapter 3, you who share in the heavenly calling, you who share in the heavenly calling. So we already know that there's a unity of brotherhood and sisterhood, that we are in Christ and with Christ, and that's based on whether or not we follow his will. We understand that. Whether he has freed us from the domain of sin and the devil, we get that. But he applies it, you who share in the heavenly calling, as it's an attribute, it's a characteristic that we have. It's something we all have in common as brothers and sisters in Christ. We share in this heavenly calling. So that begs the question, what is our heavenly calling? What is the heavenly calling he's referring to? I think first and foremost, it can be seen in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Now, no need to turn there, but in that chapter, there is just this expanse of amazing worship to God where John describes it as there are so many people singing praise to God from every tongue and language and tribe and people group that it cannot be counted. I have no idea how many people are going to be in heaven, but can you imagine being in a crowd of two billion, five billion people or more. That's enormous. We've never experienced that personally. But in Revelation it says that's what every believer is going to experience. Is this unbelievable congregation. Congregation and church just simply mean the word assembly. So an assembly of God's people gathered together. Billions upon billions of people. I'm not trying to be Carl Sagan there. But billions of people all having a focused worship to God that lasts forever and ever and ever. 
And we are going to be part of that. You are going to be part of that. It's going to be an innumerable amount of people. And for people like me who don't like crowds, God's going to have to work some miracle in my life because that, I mean, I don't want to be touched. I don't want to, you know, six feet. That was one of the most beautiful things that came out of this because I don't have to stand next to people. But in that midst, I don't think we're going to have any anxiety being in a crowd. I mean, I can't be the only person that has crowd issues, right? Yeah, okay, two people, three, four, I got it. Well, we won't hang out. Just, I love those four people, but we're not going to hang out. But that heavenly calling, in part, is the gathering together of worship. And God blesses us by saying, we've got time here and now in this place to gather together and worship just like it's going to be in heaven. That is amazing. That is God's future blessing upon us, revealing it in a small part, and then enjoying it forever. So in part, our heavenly calling is to worship God, to worship him. Secondly, our heavenly calling is being an object of God's saving grace. It's not all actions on our behalf, because in Galatians 4, he says, starting in verse 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's Christmas. Um, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons, be included as children. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir to God. What greater heavenly calling can there be than being part of God's family? I know that we're part of our family, this unity of believers here at Calvary, but we're part of a greater body adopted as sons and daughters by God himself, made heirs to his kingdom, placed at the table, not a place where servants sit, but a place where family sits. And that's where God places us. Thirdly, we are to be a witness that is our heavenly calling, and this is an action. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when these words were spoken before Jesus ascended into heaven, the uttermost ends of the earth probably was Pueblo. That's what they're thinking. Where's the furthest place that you can possibly get from that Middle Eastern culture, other side of the world? Now, I don't know if we're directly on the other side of the world, but they're totally different times. It's nighttime there right now, but it's daytime here. So it's the, the furthest place that they could have imagined. They never would have understood how far away that would have been. But the point is not the distance, but the point is when God comes upon you and makes you one of his children, you are one of his witnesses. You know I've got to ask, right? You know what I have to ask next? I'm sure some of you already know what I'm going to ask. Bless you. Now, you never would have gotten it if that was, that was the next thing. How are you doing as a witness? How are you really doing as a witness? 
Not how are you witnessing, you know, what's your evangelism look like from door to door, knocking on it and sending them flyers. No, no, no. How are you to the people around you? How good of a witness of Jesus Christ are you? Let it sink. Let it settle. And if you're like me, I think you're immediately going to go, not as good as it could be. Maybe not as good as it has been in the past. Not as good as you want it to be. Doesn't matter what it was. Doesn't matter what you want it to be. What matters is here and now. When someone looks at you, when they see you, when they interact with you, do they see the reflected character of Jesus Christ? Or do they see anger, frustration, disappointment, sorrow, sadness, depression, pride, arrogance, self? What are you witnessing to the world around you? Because there is something that you're showing people. There is. There is something. Jesus says, you're to show people me. Me. So that they, when they see you, they see me. And when they see me, they see the Father. They see the character of God in you. That is your heavenly calling. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says again, or differently, that another part of this heavenly calling in verse 20 is you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, I'm not worried about living my own life. I'm worried about, not even worried, but I'm striving to live a life that demonstrates Christ died for me. That is a far greater witness to the power of Christ than you handing someone a tract saying, you need to believe Jesus and you need to come to church. Living as Christ died for you is a far greater example of witnessing than handing out a track. That is your heavenly calling. And so we are towards the end of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. We looked at the word therefore. We looked at the word holy. We looked at the word brothers or brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we looked at the phrase, you who share in a heavenly calling. He then applies it and says all of this is for one purpose that we would consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. To consider Jesus. To be fixated on Jesus. To have our thoughts firmly on him. To observe him. To notice him. To contemplate him. To think carefully and diligently about Jesus. There is no greater stopping in your tracks and smelling the flowers than stopping in your tracks and considering Jesus. And the author goes on to say something about Jesus. He says, um, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession? 
Apostle being the one who is sent out, the one who is communicating to us. And high priest is about his character and nature and work of making us right with God through sacrifice, through his death on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 4, it says, It is true that we live in the world, but we do not fight from worldly motives. Our weapons we use in the fight are not the world's weapons, but God's powerful weapons, which we use to destroy strongholds. We destroy false arguments. We put down every proud obstacle that is raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. Every thought, everything that we are given in Scripture, every song that we sing that is praised to God, every action we take from God's Word is designed for one focus, that our day is spent thinking about Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that the rest of our life is no good and that we're no good for anything because all we're doing is meditating and thinking about Jesus. There's actions involved in that. And there's two great actions that I know you already know about. Substitute the word action with the word commandment. There are two commandments that Jesus says we are to concern ourselves with. Loving God and loving others. When our day is focused on loving God and loving others, our mind is focused on considering Jesus, the giver of life through his words and the giver of life through his death, as our apostle and as our high priest. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave it there. We've gone through the verse, and it's my hope and my prayer that as the worship team comes up, that this final song of worship not just excites your heart to sing the words, but that these words become ingrained in how you think about Jesus Christ. Let me close in prayer. Our gracious Father, you are lovely and beautiful, kind and generous, You are our God, and we are the people of your hands. Protect us, strengthen us, give us courage and resolve to love you and to love one another, that our lives might reflect that you are our God, our Lord, our King, our Savior, our Master. And may we be witnesses to the world around us, especially during this holiday time to our families. Let us be witnesses of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Would you guys stand with us? Um, This last song we're gonna sing today is In Christ Alone. I just wanna take a second and read the the second verse of that, which is my favorite. I think it's beautiful. It's, It's a summary of the gospel, it's perfect says, in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, fully God, fully man, became human, the gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save, rejected by the ones that he came to love. 
Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. By far my favorite line of the song. I think that's so beautiful. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. Sing this song.
Amen. I hope to see all of you here Friday, 4.30, for our Christmas Eve candlelight service. Until then, may God bless you and watch over you this week. Have a great week. Bye.